Radio. We have Dr. Owen Clayton on. Uh, he elected us to call him Owen. So when we don't say Dr. Clayton, don't get mad at us and say that's disrespectful. He, he told us to call him Owen in the pre-show. I have it recorded. I will play it if you don't believe me in podcast. Um, <laughs> I got the receipt. Um, but uh, Owen is a senior lecturer in English literature at the University of Lincoln in the United Kingdom. He's written a few monographs, and among others, he's edited together the dispatches of Roving Bill Aspinwall uh, in a book entitled Roving Bill Aspinwall, Dispatches from a Hobo in Post-Civil War America. We spoke about this a few weeks ago from Sergeant Wardog. Um, Aspinwall was a child soldier, Civil War hero, ladies' man, entrepreneur, tramp, drunkard, a traumatized gom- combat veteran, and he was homeless. That all introducing Mr. Owen. How you doing tonight, uh, Owen? Uh, hi, it's great to be on. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I can confirm that I did indeed say that you could call me Owen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, just so everybody knows, you are in the UK, and it is one in the morning, correct? That is correct, yeah, so it's actually the 18th here. Yeah, so he's in the future. And we're talking to the future. Yeah, and, and we're not <laughs> getting a lottery. The future, just ask me. <laughs> we're not getting the lottery numbers. We, we were told that last week with uh, Objective Zero. Uh, I guess the same goes for Owen. Yeah, sorry. <sighs> well, all right. That's the end of the show, everybody. Good night. Yeah, uh, well, good argument with you. On a serious note, uh, you've put together these dispatches, but before we get into that, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves and, or about yourself and what got you into doing, uh, this, this book? Yeah, sure. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I teach, um, literature in English. It's a lot of the time I teach American literature and I've been working on a, um, an academic monograph, which is just a, a, a fancy word for a, um, a, a difficult to read, uh, expensive academic book, uh, that will, um, that will only be bought by university libraries. Um, and that book is, uh, called, um, Vagabonds, Tramps and Hobos, The Literature and Culture of U.S. Transiency. I've, I've just finished that and um, it will be coming out with Cambridge University Press next year, probably, uh, rather than this year. Um, but as I was doing the research, for, so that, that was a book into um, the subculture of... Um, basically hobos. And when that term came into existence in the late 19th century in the US um, and how it sort of changed over time um, and how it was different from the word tramp and how it was different from the word vagabond um, and how there was this kind of working class subculture of, um, yeah, hobos that were kind of basically building up the American West in the sort of 20, 30 years after the kind of closure of the frontier um, and the sort of development of um, American modernity and capitalism, if you like. And it was a lot, you know, the, the, the two different groups that were kind of building the mines and the mills and the railroads and, you know, working in the harvest fields and all that kind of stuff were, um, to a certain extent, uh, migrants and um, and also um, hobos. And so there was this kind of really thriving um, subculture that created lots of music and art and literature. And no one had really written about that. So um, that's what the other book that is coming out with Cambridge University Press is about. But as part of the research into that, um, I uh, kind of stumbled a- a- across um, these letters uh, written by uh, William Aspinwall, Roden Bill, um, and 
happened over a 24-year period and realized that they'd never been published by anyone. And I just found that kind of amazing, really, as that, you know, they're, they're just really, really, really interesting. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, I guess, a sort of something that I, that I happened across as I was doing, you know, this, this kind of wider research into, into the hobo, uh, hobo subculture, which was called Hobohemia. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, I didn't know there was a word or a subculture called Hobohemia. <laughs> that that took me aback. I, I wasn't ready for that one. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> does that does that tie into the the Bohemian subculture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh. So um, the the term Hobohemia, um, yeah, it, it sort of brings together the hobo and, and Bohemia, and it was this. It was I I, I kind of argue in in the other book that um, it was the first counterculture in the United States. So not just a subculture, but a counterculture um, that was, you know, trying to go against the mainstream in many ways and kind of, you know, particularly for things like workers' rights, because this was a, a period where, you know, people were being, you know, treated really badly in terms of their pay and also, you know, the, the conditions they were working in and, um you had some people trying to kind of fight back against that. Um, and, it, you know, it was kind of, although the, the, the Wild West was over in in, in one sense, um, it was still a bit of a Wild West in terms of, you know, lawlessness and sort of what people could, what kind of conditions people would work under. And, you know, hobos would kind of go all around the country, obviously, and work all different jobs and generally not be treated very well. But then the, the one advantage was that they could just leave a job if they didn't like it and go and work somewhere else. So, yeah, then, you know, they were... Uh, um, in these kind of what were called jungles, um, these camps that were often by the sides of railroads, and you know people would, there were these were the kind of centres of hobohemia where people would kind of gather around campfires and sing songs and tell stories and telling like tall tales was a real big thing. So like telling exaggerated stories about you know what you'd seen on the road or um, you know the things that you'd done, and it, it became this kind of really. Um, sort of storytelling uh subculture storytelling became really important to that to that uh, to that culture i'm going to nerd out just a little bit because the hobo aspect of this and the reason i say i'm going to nerd out a little bit <clears throat> is because i was doing some research for a book i'm writing which is all completely fiction and i've been working on it for a while but i wanted to have something catching on the cover and I found out, and many people probably don't know because they just don't bother to care to look into it or they just go by what, whatever they hear, right? And hobos had their own language and, uh, essentially um, and would leave, for lack of a better term, hieroglyphics, right? At like these train stops or these houses and stuff, warning people or letting them know, you know, hey, this is a good place to get some food or work or et cetera, et cetera. And it was all symbols and, and stuff because we got to remember that was a time where not everybody was educated to read and it, it just wasn't of significance. Is there anything like that that you found out that shocked you or surprised you when you were doing the research on Hobohemia? So the, one, one of the guys um, who I came across claimed to, to have invented that system mm -hmm. um, of of the, of the hieroglyphics, but the, the, and this was a guy called Leon Ray Livingston who was known by his hobo 
uh, name was A Number One because hobos all had you know nicknames. Right. Um, and um, but the problem with A Number One is he's, he was a massive liar. Um, <laughs> so he, he, you know, he, m- most of his books are just complete fantasy, um, and um, so it's, it's kind of difficult to know what you know what to believe. I, um, and uh, and historians you know really kind of disagree with each other about talk, you know ha- how much to an extent that hieroglyphic system was in place. I think some people did use it, but it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, hugely widely uh, known. But it, it's right. it's kind of difficult to know because, um, you know, the, the the kind of archaeology, I guess, if you like, of those those posts where people would leave that, you know, doesn't survive that well. Um, although a, a friend of mine has um, got some really cool footage from the 1960s, some beautiful eight millimeter film footage from the 1960s of these old uh, train yards um, uh, that were dated from the early 20th century um, and I think it's from Red Bluff, California if I remember rightly um, and it's all these um, hobos leaving their you know, leaving their names uh, on the side of this building and um, leaving their nicknames and the dates that they were there and it's all like, you know, like 1899, 1901, 1904 um, so, you know, there are some of those kinds of marks that, um, that have um, been thankfully you know I, th- I think it was just like any other language i think it, it, it was based off of region and stuff of that nature and like you said it probably wasn't worldly known or, or however you want to look at it but again i think it was it was centered to regions and and groups and stuff like that i could be wrong but I, I, don't know. Well, um, I mean, Aspinwall actually talks about it a little bit in his letters, actually, because it's one of the things that the guy who he's writing the letters to is interested in. So, um, yeah, it is actually, you know, roving builders actually say that he he knows that people do it. He, he says that um, he doesn't really do it himself. He doesn't leave these signs. He doesn't really know all of the slang words. But um, that, that was another big part of Hobohemia, though, that, um, you know, they had their own their own slang words for things because um, I guess, you know, that's a way of making sure someone, you, you know that someone's inside the culture if they know those words. And obviously, if somebody doesn't know those words, then, you know, they're probably an outsider and you need to be careful and you don't, you know, don't trust that person necessarily. Right. And with hobo, I think the term has a a horrible um, look upon it, thanks to media and entertainment. But it's not really that true as far as they're bad people, correct? I mean, they're just everyday people. They just were homeless or chose a life that nobody else chose. Yeah, definitely. So um, the the, probably the best definition I can think of for a hobo was a transient worker. Mm-hmm. So somebody who was, you know, was was working for a living, but was just moving around to do it because, you know, there wasn't the stable jobs necessarily in one place that, you know, and, um, you know, quite often in the early 20th century in particular, you would get, um, you know, you would be given a job, let's say you're in like Chicago or somewhere like that, and you would go to a, 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 an employment agency, which were known as sharks, a job shark, um, and they would give you a job, but it would be, you know, in a lumber camp in Oregon or something like that. And, you know, they might give you a, a free train ticket or, or or they might not, in which case you'd have to illegally hop a freight train to get there, which was obviously something that hobos did, did a lot and are kind of famous for. But yeah, so one, um, there, there was an organization called the um, International Brotherhood Welfare Association, which was a kind of a bit like a union, but also a bit like a 
um, kind of a charity and like a self-help organization that had hobo colleges um, in lots of different cities in the US. The biggest one was in Chicago. Um, and they tried to set up a, de- a definition of um, the hobo works and wanders, the tramp dreams and wanders, and the bum drinks and wanders. Um, so that was that was the sort of hierarchy that they were trying to set up. Now I'm not saying that I actually agree with that hierarchy um, right. necessarily, but but and and like the term hobo, cha- the meaning of it kind of changes over time. And I guess what you're asking is like today the word would probably just be used as as like another word for homeless person. Um, but yeah, in the early 20th century. Um, uh, and, and for a long time, um, you know, it, it meant someone who was a was a worker, but just someone who moved around for, for, for their jobs. Right. Now, we've said all that in a roundabout way to get to the book of Roving Bill Aspenwall. Now, first off, why did you put together his dispatches in a book? Uh, yeah, well, um, I, you know, I came across, um, references to his letters in some, uh, work by some historians that I was reading. So the, the letters are written over a 24 year period between, uh, Rovingville, William Aspen Wall, um, and a guy called, uh, Professor John James McCook, um, who is a professor of modern languages at, um, Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, and, um, the, it's this really, you know, amazing long correspondence between these two people who you wouldn't necessarily think have a huge amount in common, really. Um, but, um, John James McCook was somebody who was, you know, was interested in, in the problem of tramps and transiency and vagrancy. Um, and Roving Bill was somebody who wanted to tell his story and, uh, you know, his own story in his own words. And, um, I, yeah, I, I came across a number of historians talking about, um, these letters, but they only ever talked about the letters, um, by talking about a series of articles that McCook wrote, um, which he wrote in 1902. Um, and those articles are called Leaves from the Diary of a Tramp. Um, and those letters um, have some of Aspinwall's letters in them, but they also talk about lots of other people. Um, and those le- the, the articles that McCook wrote were very much, you know, McCook was the one in charge and he kind of makes Roving Bill seem like kind of as though Roving Bill's problems are his own fault. Um, and I, what, and, and, and a number of the historians I've read who kind of used those articles as their basis kind of went along with that. Um, so it made it sound like, you know, Roving Bill's was, you know, was homeless because, you know, because he was an alcoholic and that, that was his fault somehow. Um, and I, I don't know, I wasn't completely happy with that. Um, and so, yeah, well, then when I, you know, when I, I went looking for the letters and I, and I, you know, and I found them and I, and I, you know, read them obviously and, and thought, wow, these are amazing. These, these need to be, these need to get out there because, you know, Roving Bill's story has only really been told by McCook for about a hundred years. And McCook makes, McCook likes Roving Bill, but he does make him, it sound like, yeah, Bill's problems are Bill's fault. Um, and what, what McCook never really addresses in his, his articles is the question of trauma um, and the fact that Robing Bill was a, was a veteran um, who had, yeah, suffered 
serious injury in the American Civil War and was somebody who had, you know, never received the treatment that he needed. And I think that explains a lot about then his, you know, the way his life went in sort of subsequent decades. So I thought it was just really important to get his story out in his own words for the first time. Oh, definitely. And, you know, that's, uh, as I said in the pre-show, you know, that's one of the big things that drew us to what Sergeant Wardog was talking about with uh, Roven Gill was the fact he was a veteran and homeless and drunkard and you name it and how it resonated with a lot of today's veterans. Uh, JJ, are you there? Yeah, I'm right here. Do you, do you want to take over for a second? Yeah. So what, what, I think what intrigued me the most is that just from the, the little bit that we've been able to read the excerpts and the, you know, the, the, the press kit for, for lack of a better term. Um, Roving Bill was experiencing the same kinds of things that today's uh, homeless veterans are. And what intrigues me and, and just really catches my interest is that one of the prevailing feelings, one of the things when you get to talk to a disabled veteran, a homeless veteran, one of the, the prevailing, uh, feelings that I've heard expressed is that, that they um, feel like they're alone, like nobody, that, that this has never happened to anybody else, but them, even though they might be sitting on a bench in a park next to three other homeless disabled veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm fascinated. I'm buying a copy of this book because I really want to hear the story. I spent some time homeless uh, you know, I want to hear what it was like for a disabled veteran then, and I want to see how similar it is to what life is like for a homeless and disabled veteran now. And I think, I, I mean, I hope that your intent in putting this together is not just from, from the historical uniqueness of the perspective, but I hope that there's some some uh, kind of intent to share with modern veterans, the fact that not only are they not alone, but that their experience is one that is similar enough to past veterans that we can all begin to start to study and learn from that. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, I think I first started on the trail of, I suppose, the, you know, the, the hobo book because I was walking to work in Lincoln, you know, past lots of people sleeping on the street, sleeping rough. And, you know, thought that, you know, I wanted to do something, you know, to help in it as much as, as much as a book can ever help. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely. In terms of, um, if people feel, you know, feel that, you know, somehow their experiences are unique to them. I mean, their, their, their experiences will be their own experiences, but at the same time, a lot of the, a lot of people have gone through very similar things and, and have gone through very similar things for, you know, for centuries. And I, and I think it's really, you know, we were talking about this before we went on air. I think it's really interesting how um, there are certain wars that don't seem to get talked about in relation to trauma. Um, you know, and I think um, I don't in- exactly know why that is. Uh, you know, I think like World War One 
people might talk about shell shock um, or maybe Vietnam. People might talk about stuff a bit. Um, but I think maybe, you know, some of this is just because people didn't talk about things when they were, you know, in, in, in earlier generations. And it was part of the, uh, we, again, we were talking about this before we went on air, the idea of, you know, being a man was someone who doesn't, who doesn't talk about their emotions, you know, those all, all those sort of old fashioned ideas of, of what being a man is. Um, but, but also I think with certain wars get kind of held up as being particularly heroic somehow in like the popular culture, um, and in media and, and films and, and, and books and things like that. And I think the American civil war, um, is one of those and i think um world war ii perhaps is one of those as well and those wars don't seem to get linked in with the trauma that would have been experienced by the people in them um to uh, at least uh, at least that's not you know not not what i've seen so yeah i mean i you know i think um it's absolutely uh in, important if people um think that yeah that their experiences of you know mean that they are um i don't know a failure or something like that it's absolutely not the case if um you know so like with bill's experience for example you know with his him kind of turning to alcoholism uh, um that happened as a result of being in the army and he talks about that in his letters and he he says to mccook he says you know not only did the army uh the the union because he was on the union side um not only did but i think you know alcoholism was a problem on on the confederate side too but not only were the union um you know recruiters not checking to see whether people had a drink problem before they signed them up but they were actively encouraging drinking during um and before battle because basically Mm -hmm. it was a way to sort of keep people's nerves on edge um or you know help people kind of deal with those nerves and this was a really serious problem on both sides of the conflict you know like there was massive alcoholism on both sides and i don't know there's been a little bit of research in recent years on this, but for, for a long, long time, nobody had really looked into that, um, into that side of the war that, you know, that actually the, 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 the doctors actually coined a new term, uh, it, it, during the war. And that term was chronic alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it, I think in those days, alcohol was absolutely used. I mean, it was, it was considered medicinal. It was, mm-hmm. You know, it was, I mean, people were selling whiskey as cure, as a cure all, as a panacea. And it, you know, here, take a drink of this. It'll, it'll, you know, it'll, it'll bolster you. It'll, it'll, it'll strengthen you, you know, it'll make you braver. Well, not only Um, that, in relation to the Vietnam War with marijuana, I mean, the majority of them weren't doing it to be rebellious. The majority of them were doing it because that was a fucked up war. I mean, they were, I mean, look at the footage, look at the stories, right? I mean, don't forget the opioids. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, again, like we had said, what intrigued us about Aspenwall's story is the fact that it's so relatable to present day world. I mean, I think probably the biggest difference is, and I need to read it, but I bet you the biggest difference is however uh, Aspenwall refers to drinking and alcoholism Today we call it self-medication mm-hmm. and, you know, the and it's just, yeah, we're using some kind of substance to help uh, distract us from what's really going on in our heads. Right. And I want to know how he relates and, 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 and talks about the trauma or the PTSD or whatever you want to call it. Cause today 
we walk on eggshells even today. I mean, mm-hmm. here here yeah. at DV DV Radio, we encourage you to talk about it if you want to, obviously. But at the same time, in the real world, in normal media, in normal social media, and everyday talk, we got to walk on eggshells, right? So how did he mm-hmm. talk about it? How did they talk about it during or after the Civil War, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, pretty much the answer is that they didn't talk about it. And mm-hmm. that was the problem, I think. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of there almost by its absence in a, in a, in a weird kind of contradictory way. Um, it's not something that is talked about explicitly, really. Um, it's something that I think you can detect by his actions, it would be my argument. You know, it's a bit like when like astronomers look for a, bl- a black hole and, you know, they, they can't see the black hole, but they can see all the things that are, that are impacted by the gravity of gravitational effect of the black hole. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like that. You know, I think if you look at the, like the contour of his life, um, you know, when he, he leaves um, the army and he kind of settles down, starts to get a decent job in a, in a factory, he's relatively okay off at one point and his life just collapses um and and he goes through these repeated cycles of um get you know being housed and 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 having his shit together um getting married and then it it, you know he he drinks and um it, it all just collapses around him and he ends up on the road again and then you know maybe he has like five years on the road or 10 years on the road and then he gets his act together and he um yeah gets a job tries to set up a business or one point um again it collapses he's back on the road and so it's this real cycle of um sort of of homelessness and and being housed um and and i i think that's where you can detect what he was experiencing unfortunately mm-hmm. it's not so much in, in explicitly what he says um because it's a time period in which that wasn't really done it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't really acknowledged unfortunately and i mean even in today's world, we still, with all the resources, we don't have the resources, right? Like, yeah, you can go to a, a psychologist, you can talk to a doctor, you can do this, you can talk, you can go to therapy 24 hours a day, and they're still not even going to scratch the, the surface nine times out of 10. And even back then, even if they did have that resource, with just the way the culture was, They wouldn't have scratched the surface knowing what they knew then. I mean, it's, it's eye opening how relatable something that happened over a hundred years ago is still relevant today, right? Like we talk about, oh, well, we've got it made today and I'm not going to lie, we do, but in a psyche aspect, it's basically the same. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to mention real quick, uh, because the fact that DV does also have our own DV farm in which we house, you know, homeless veterans up in New Hampshire. Yeah, homeless and and addicted uh, veterans. Right, right. And then uh, from what I understand, right, Bo, we run DV farm as a uh, uh, as a sober house, sober facility, right? Yeah, it's it's a long term rehab for addicted and homeless veterans and. Uh, you, you, the veterans that have come through is exactly what we we've just talked about. I mean, mm-hmm. they they've talked to somebody, they've went to the rehabs, they've failed, and their their life is just that cycle that you were talking about, Owen. That Aspenwall had, you know, 
do the drugs, do the drinking, get married, have the family, and then it all comes crashing down. Okay, let's move on to the next plethora of bullshit that's going to tear my world down. And it just, all that just keeps weighing and weighing and weighing until they have nowhere else to go. They have nothing else to do. And that's, we, we take in the problem children, right? Like that's, that's what we do, but yeah, it's, yeah, I was thinking, right. That because Rove and Bill was kicked out of multiple veterans homes, mm-hmm. you know, while he was seeking help. Can you imagine DV six having to, <laughs> you know what I mean? DV six having to curse out and throw out. I'm going to tell you, know, you what, talk about a problem child. He is the redheaded stepchild. DV six was roving Bill yeah. for a while. Yeah, he really you know? was. I mean, when well, you listen to his story, yeah. He he done the drugs. He done the drinking. He done the crimes. He 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 was homeless for how long? What a few years? I mean, so yeah. And wow. Um, one question I did have, Owen, when you were going through all of Aspinwall's uh, writings, is there anything that jumped out at you that made you go, "Wow"? Yeah, there are some really um, poignant moments. So he like talks about. Um, so one of the things he does when he's on the road is he goes around um, fixing umbrellas for people, uh, which was this job with the with the brilliant uh, name uh, mush faking, uh, mush faking because um, of the relate of the uh, resemblance between a, an upturned umbrella and a mushroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, that you know he, he he's kind of like an old fashioned tinker, I, I guess, kind of going from town to town and um, you know fixing people's umbrellas for them he also does all the little odd jobs he's, he's actually really quite handy but um he, he talks in one of the letters about how um you know he, when he'll go into a new town and everybody will stare at him um and then like the, the small children will like run away from him as if he's really uh terrifying um, and then he and he says you know i, I must look and he, he writes in the letter, you know, I, I must look terrible. Um, and, I, and then so I want to get I want to get a mirror so, so that I know what I look like. And then he manages to get hold of something reflective and looks at his reflection. And he says, I don't see anything terrible, just something a bit, uh, you know, just I just look older. And I just, it, yeah, to me, that just was really, you know, like that that voice of the person who is the one who is like the despised one, you know, um, the one who everybody is scared of, who you just don't hear that person's voice very often. And like what it's like to be that person that everybody thinks is a really, you know, terrible, frightening person. But actually, it's just a, a human being, you know, in a really bad situation. Now, you said that most other authors that had written about him basically blamed him and, and whatnot. When you went through his papers and you put this together, how did you come away looking at him? And obviously it's opinion, but what do you, what is your thoughts on what caused the troubles? And obviously to an extent we can blame him, but the overall cause, what, what do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of my overall feelings about him personally, I suppose I, you know, I like him. He's, he's quite a charmer. Um, you can kind of see how he was, you know, managed to like, he was quite popular with with people and you know including men and, and women and he's he's quite a charming person and you sort of get a sense of of that as you're reading so it's quite quite hard not to like him as you're reading the letters even though he doesn't always treat people as well as he should do he he you know he he will um you know like leave women um at the drop of a hat 
kind of thing. Um, but so he, you know, I'm certainly not claiming that he he behaved perfectly. Far far from it, actually. Well, um, but in terms of what caused it, um, I mean, you know, he gets shot in the head basically in. Um, uh, in 1863, so it was the Battle of Champion Hill, um, which, uh, which was, um, you know, in, in uh, the part of the Vicksburg uh, campaign, um, and he's fighting for the 47th Indiana uh, Regiment um, for the Union, um, and he, yeah, he gets uh, he get he gets shot in the head um, and and shoulder as well, um, and he he got knocked unconscious by uh, by a mini ball um, and. Oh basically he then wakes up and finds himself behind enemy lines um and he's a prisoner you know the confederates have 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 captured him um and he he claims to be able to see uh one of the confederate generals um looking through a telescope at the union troops he claims to be that close to him but then the union troops uh do do their own counterattack um and while that's going on he then kind of slinks away um and manages to kind of rejoin the union lines and get himself to hospital um and and he actually ends up reenlisting and and you you know, fighting on to the re- in the rest of the war, and I, so I suppose you know I, I think there's a general uh, generalized thing to blame, which is the war in terms of it turning him into an alcoholic. But I also think probably specifically that incident. I mean, I, I can't prove it, um, but I think specifically that incident. I think had a had a big impact on him in terms because it's something that he writes about again and again. Um, you know, he, he writes articles to newspapers about it. He repeatedly writes to McCook about it. Um, and I think, you know, something that is well known about trauma now, and, and I'm sure, you, you know, you, you guys could probably all, all tell me about this as well, you know, that, that one of the things about trauma is that people tend to kind of repeat, it tends, tends to repeat in somebody's mind, um, particularly mm-hmm. when that's, that trauma hasn't been kind of worked through properly um, or, or kind of dealt with or resolved um, in a, you know, in a sort of proper therapeutic sense. And so, yeah, I, I would, you know, I, I can't prove it, but I think that's what, um, I think it's a combination of that incident, but also the alcoholism that he picked up during the war, um, which, right. yeah, leads him then in later life after the war to, you know, treat people um, not, not particularly well, even though he could be, as I say, a bit of a charmer. I don't want to keep you on much longer and we'll, we'll close it up here in just a few minutes. But first off, the fact that he survived a mini ball. And for those that don't know, that's basically a hollow point bullet. Um, that was used during the civil war. Uh, the fact that he, yeah, the fact that he survived that is just mind boggling because they were a killer. Most people died from those. It didn't really matter where you got shot. You either died from the shot or you died from the infection or you died from something. Um, just wow. So I, I can see why he had trauma. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, also you, you mentioned, you know, he would, he would leave women at the drop of a hat. Um, would you equate that to what a lot of veterans today do and they just, they don't want to deal with it anymore. So let me get rid of it. I, yeah, I mean, I guess that, you know, is something that is maybe seen in, you know, people with, with yeah, who are experiencing homelessness as well. You know, mm-hmm. that sort of sense of I can, you know, try and run away from my problems and hope that they won't catch up with me, I suppose, right. um, which is obviously it's kind of a losing battle, isn't it? If the problem is sort of yeah. within, you know, you're always going to kind of carry it with you. But at the same time, it's a very understandable 
it's a very understandable reaction and i think it deserves sort of empathy and sympathy and help and support yeah and, and um, like like you said you know he, he definitely wasn't a saint but at the same time like i just said you have to see what caused that right you, you can't just say well he was a piece of ass wall shit like <laughs> um go ahead jj uh, oh, and you, you said he was a child soldier. What age did he join the Union Army? Uh, he was 16 when he signed up. Jesus so, Christ. Th- th- I mean, that's part, possibly quite a bit of the of the issue, too, is that at that age, he certainly wasn't, uh, mm-hmm. in today's society, what we consider mature enough to make those kinds of decisions to do things like join the Army and uh, certainly don't have necessarily the emotional um, – maturity to deal with the things you face in battle that is just absolutely i mean well but at the same time we have uh records of uh uh soldiers who lied and joined uh world war ii at the age of 14 so yeah because there was a some of them done sort of a a non-fib were and I can't remember the exact quote, but when they would be in the sign up line, they would actually put on a piece of paper they were eighteen or nineteen in their shoe and say, I was stand I'm standing on eighteen or whatever that quote was. I can't remember exactly what that saying was. And they weren't lying. They were literally standing on that, but they were talking about their age instead, mm-hmm. which it's just wow, you know. <laughs> um Oh, and we do have a question uh, from our chat from Red's Place. She asked, what's next for you? Uh, do you have anything else on the horizon? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of got a couple of projects that I'm tr- basically trying to see whether I can get any of them funded <laughs> to see, uh, <laughs> before I decide which of them to sort of go, go for first. So um, one potential project is um, I'd quite like to do some work on um, – Paulie Murray, uh, who was the um, uh, the jurist and sort of civil rights activist, um, and another but another project um, which I think might be a, more of a longer term project is I'd like to do a book on um, American prison writings because uh, that that isn't something that has been written about a lot, and I think you know a lot of really important works of literature and politics and philosophy and religion and all kinds of, you know, areas have been written while people have been in prison. So um, mm-hmm. I think that'd be re- really interesting. Quite, quite looking forward to getting my teeth into that one. I can tell you, we awesome. understand the getting the funding part. Um, <laughs> <laughs> most of this Get is out, out of your... our pockets. <laughs> Go ahead. Word dog. I just wanted, I wanted to touch on, um, I mean, cause that when I read the book, I totally, um, I, I just wanted current and modern veterans to always get that, that acknowledgement, like, man, whatever we're dealing with now have gone through, this has been going on, you know, we're not alone. We're right, not alone. Right. Yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I really wanted, uh, on to touch on the, uh, status of, uh, British soldier, uh, homelessness yes. and suicide, because we know what our stats are here in the U S but we really don't, um, you know, we haven't had a chance, uh, many of us, to to find out or to delve into what it's like in the UK for their combat veterans. Yeah, I think I think it's very similar. So I, I think um, the uh, rates of, I mean, the the army in Britain. I don't, I don't know about where I don't know about in the US, but in, in in Britain, the army don't like those stats about suicide to be made public, unfortunately. But in terms of um, 
in terms of homelessness, I know it's very high. I, I mean, I, I think it's even sort of 20, 30 percent. Um, so, uh, you know, a really disproportionate number of people. And, you know, for very similar reasons to what happened with Roving Bill, right, that when people are, you know, are no longer kind of useful, they, they often just get kind of dumped and expected to just go back to civilian life as if they haven't been through an absolutely earth-shattering, life-changing, psyche-bending experience for the last however many years and then just all all of a sudden supposed to sort of switch back into you know into being a, a normal civilian again and um oftentimes that is not possible without much more support than is made available so yeah it's a very similar situation i think um what uh, somebody um who's a friend of mine um called joe glenton has written um a book actually about um uh, about British um, ex-servicemen, uh, which came out last year, um, and I forget the title of it now, um, but his name's Joe Glenton. So if people are interested in, um, uh, yes, uh, hearing about uh, British uh, former vets, uh, I, would, I would Google him and check his latest book out. Um, one other question that I had pertaining to the UK and your veterans, correct me if I'm wrong. You don't really have a veterans affairs over there. Do you, what kind of veteran services does the UK offer? Um, yeah, I don't know if there is as much even necessarily as, uh, as you, as you guys have, we have the British Legion, which is a kind of charity that, mm-hmm. um, funds uh you know uh for specifically for uh for veterans um and they you know they fundraise we we were talking about the the pop red pop red poppies uh in november uh they fund um for that um and you know and people get military pensions which are supposed to help and and i think the other funding that people can get is you know if they want to go and do university courses which i I believe is also the case in the u.s as well Mm -hmm. um but it might very well be that there is um possibly less than uh than than is in the u.s yeah i i knew you guys didn't have a dedicated quote-unquote veterans affairs which is a travesty and and i know a few people uh from the uk and i follow a few people and and stuff like that that served and they they uh have the black dog chasing them quite a bit um so it i i wish that we could do so much more for you guys uh especially in terms of veterans and homelessness in general it's it's sad really that you know you you do something that you love and and for your country nonetheless and they're like yeah okay well you're on your own now you know i'm not saying the va is the greatest thing in the world it's not but i am grateful for what they have obviously done but at the same time they're not perfect. I'm going to say right now, they're not perfect. Um, JJ or Wardog, do you have any other questions or anything for Owen? I would just like to say, Owen, um, thank you. Uh, one of the uh, guiding principles in my life is a quote from George Santayana that uh, just as simply those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so I would really like to commend you for finding this piece of the past that's so deeply relatable to the modern veteran, both in the U S and, and in great Britain and bringing it back to light. Um, I think that if we can start to understand and acknowledge that the past foretold the future, that we were not, al- we are not alone, that this, that, that we're not the first. And 
but maybe if we begin to study it and understand it, we can be the last generations that have to deal with these kinds of uh, issues. So thank you very, very much for your uh, scholarship and for bringing, I think, of what could become a very important uh, uh, book in the library of the uh, of the American veteran to light. Uh, thank you very much. 100%. Oh, well, thank you. That that means a tremendous amount. Thank you. I, I really, really do appreciate that. And, you know, amen to everything you were saying there as well. And, um, you know, so, so often in, uh, in academia, it can feel uh, like your, uh, you know, what you're doing doesn't necessarily uh, matter or have an impact in the real world. So I, I really do appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Wardog. I wanted to thank Owen as well. And uh, also Christina Ward at Farrell House Publishing uh, in the state of Washington. I truly, just as uh, JJ said, appreciate you sharing your work of art uh, and, you know, letting our current and modern day veterans know, uh, myself included, that, hey, any of the struggles that I had that I or continue, still continue to uh, deal with, have been going on for over a hundred years. And the fact that you've been able to equate that so well from a wounded uh, civil war combat veteran to our present day uh, veterans. um, I I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And I I think, you know, what I've done is pretty small in comparison to what you, you are all doing with the work that you do, but I really do appreciate that. Thank you so much. I'm not going to rehash what JJ and Wardog said because I can't say it any better. Uh, but Owen, is there any places that you advise people to go check your book out and purchase it right now? Like, go ahead, tell them, tell them, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I think it's available from all good bookstores or at least, I bet that's the phrase, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, I think you can uh, get it from um, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and those kinds yeah. of, uh, those kinds of places. Um, it's on the zone. It's on the Zon. Right. right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's in my cart. That's how I know. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, and if anybody wants to leave a review once they've read it, that would also be great. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I promise I will. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you. That's one thing we harp here. We, we've got a couple of uh, veteran authors that we work closely with. And that's one thing I'm like, leave a review, please. Um, uh, again, Owen, thank you and and everybody uh, that you're working with to to come here and and be on the show. I don't know why in the hell you would want to be on this show, but thank you. <laughs> um, oh, it's been a blast. Uh, I, I I appreciate you taking such a late time uh, on your Sunday morning uh, to come <laughs> and do this with us. Truly, uh, and like JJ and, and Wardog said, this it, you. Don't sell yourself short. Uh, you're, you're doing a lot more than you realize. And in the right hands, this is going to be, like JJ said, a huge wake-up call for 99% of the veterans in the right hands. And, and hopefully that happens. And thank you, Owen. Uh, we appreciate it. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our uh, listeners tonight? 
Oh, just thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And, um, you know, good luck with all your, um, you know, your struggles um, because it's it's not easy. But, yeah, I guess uh, if, if Bill has got a lesson, is that it's that you're not alone and um, you don't need to feel like, um, you know, that there's something wrong with you. In fact, uh, it might be that something has been done uh, wrong has been done to you instead. So um, keep, keep on the good fight, uh, looking after yourselves. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Owen. Good night and good morning. Thank you. <laughs> you too. Uh, so that was Dr. Owen Clayton. Uh, he put together uh, the dispatches called Roving Bill Aspinwall Dispatches, dispatches from a hobo in post-Civil War America. You can buy that at Amazon. While you're there, go to smile.amazon.com. Make DB Farm your shorts and a portion of your shopping cart purchase goes directly to the DB Farm. No hidden fees are its costs. Um, yeah, so what a wake-up You know up what call. kills me? What, what, what kind of, I mean, it, it, you know, I... I I'm not upset because at least there are scholars who are looking at this, but why isn't, a, why aren't American scholars digging? We're so busy mm-hmm. fucking digging up woke culture and, and yeah. you know, everything's racist that we're missing our own history. Yeah. And so how great to have somebody who I, I guess would be is, uh, separated enough from the, nonsense that's going on in American academia to take a look at some historic documents and bring us our own history back to us and and just, wow, how cool, you know, at least somebody out there is thinking past their latest fad. Radio.